All right, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. This is going to be a parable that many of you are familiar with. It is a parable that most people have heard of. Even if you're not from a church background, this is a parable. The title of the parable is something you're probably familiar with. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we're going to take a look at that today, and I hope it will be a challenge for us all. Uh, I hope you were as challenged as I was all week long as I read through it. Uh, very, uh, very encouraging and yet challenging passage at the same time. So we're just going to jump right in. I don't have a big setup today. We're just going to jump in and let the word speak, okay? So in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to him and uh, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, real quick, this is not like a lawyer like you and I would think of a lawyer, this is not a legal expert. It's a, when it says lawyer, particularly in scripture, what they're really talking about is people who are experts in the law, referring to the law of God. Okay, these were, these were religious people. These were religious leaders. They were experts in understanding what the law of God was and then teaching that to other people. And so you'll notice that the lawyer stands up to Jesus and he says, all right, and he does it for this reason. And you see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. Religious people would challenge Jesus in order to try and test him. So here's what he says. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice the question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The focus of religion, okay? Let's not be guilty of this in our life. The focus of religion is always, it always revolves around the question, what must I do? And we have to be careful. I mean, if, listen, if we're coming to church so that we can be religious, if we're coming to church just simply to make us feel good about ourselves and our standing with God, that would be religion. And so Jesus is, you know, this lawyer, he's saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We have to know this. We cannot do anything in order to work our way to God. God came and worked his way to us through the cross. So our, faith, our, our righteousness and our relationship with God is all based on the things that God has done for us, not what we do for God. So then what is the purpose of church? We'll get to that. Verse 26 says this. So Jesus is going to now respond to that question. He says, well, what's written in the law? Again, lawyer, what's written in the law, how do you read it? So Jesus is going to put it on him. How do you read it? Now, listen to his response. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, listen to what Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Ding, 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 ding. You got the right answer. Survey says, number one, you got it. You hit it. And there was only one bar to flip on the, the family feud thing when Jesus said, when he said that answer, and he says, you got it. That was it. That was the only one. He says, you got the right answer. Now look at what he says next. What does he say to him? He says, all right, you've answered correctly. What are the next two words? Do this. And guess what? You will live. Now, just a quick question to throw out. Are you living today? Of course, you've got a pulse. Of course, you're inhaling and exhaling. I mean, everything's working. You're alive. I'm not asking you if you're alive. I'm asking you if you're living. I mean, are you experiencing life? 
Like, are you just going, man, my life is so full. It is so good. My life, I, it, is, it is as good as I ever could have dreamed my life could be. Is that where you're at? Now, you, you, may, have, you may have qualifiers to that when you think about your life. But I, I really want to ask you today, are you living? Because Jesus said, do this and you will live. This is what he says to the lawyer. Now, here's the point, okay, of the entire parable, which we haven't actually gotten to the parable yet. But here's the point of the entire parable. Now, as a communicator, one of the things that you're really not supposed to do is what I'm about to do. A communicator is supposed to set up attention, right? Like we're going to create a problem through what we find in the text and everybody's going to lean into the tension and you're going to go, yeah, you know, I feel that too. And then you're supposed to use the text to bring the solution to the tension and then deliver it at the end. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to tell you what this whole parable is about at the beginning, okay? So I'm going to violate my communicating teaching, and I'm going to go ahead and give you what this whole thing is about. Today, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan is what we're covering. And again, if you're not from a church background, that's okay. We'll get into the parable in a minute. If, even if you're not, though, you've heard of being a Good Samaritan. The point of the parable is this. It is possible to have the right answer to the wrong question, okay? It is possible for me and for you to have the right answer to the wrong question, and I'm going to show you this throughout the text. But can I ask you a question as we're thinking about everything that we've read so far? What question, <clears throat> what question did the lawyer answer? He answered the question... Well, what is written in the law? And he absolutely got the question right. He answers the question, what is written in the law? And he gets it right. But what, what question did he want the answer to? What was the first question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he got the right answer to the wrong question, did he not? Like he's saying, I want to know what it is that I have to do to inherit eternal life. So question today, are you living? Because Jesus said, do this and you will live. Well, what is the this? Again, the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus spins it back, says, hey, well, what does this say? What is the question? He gets that question right, but he never really fully understands. He got the right question or the right answer to the wrong question. Now, I want to show you another moment in the ministry of Jesus where this very same thing happens, okay? In, in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, listen to this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? It's a good question. And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them. Jesus turns the tables, and now he's going to ask the question, but who do you say that I am? So he says, who do people say that I am? And then, Peter, and then he, he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now that doesn't make any sense. Why in the world? Why would Jesus, I mean, isn't the purpose of, of Jesus coming to earth to make himself known so that people would know that he is the savior of the world so that people could come to salvation in Jesus' name? And is it the purpose of grabbing 12 disciples and teaching them who he is 
for the very sole purpose that he knows that one day he's going to die. He is going to be buried. He's going to raise from, the, he's going to be risen from the dead. And then he's going to ascend to heaven. And he needed people here to carry out that truth and to take that truth to the ends of the world. Is that not the reason that Jesus came? Of course it is. Then So then why does Peter, when Peter gets the answer right, when he answers the question, you are the Christ, why does Jesus say, I don't want you to tell anybody? Well, the question the disciples were asked was what? Who do you say I am? Okay? The question he really answered when, so when Peter says, well, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. See, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? But Peter, when he answered, even though he used the right terminology, Peter actually answered the first question. Who do people say that I am? You're like, well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. He didn't. He answered differently than when he said, who do people say that I am? Well, and so you might push back on that and go, no, no, no. He answered that question and he got it right. But let me defend my position for just a second. In the book of Isaiah, so Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet. One of the things that the prophets did is they prophesied, they foretold things that were to come. They would predict the future in the sense of, particularly as it applies to Jesus, here's the Messiah. Here's how you will know and recognize who the Messiah is when he shows up. Very much in the same way, if you've ever had to go and meet someone that you've never met before, that you had an appointment and you were going to meet at a neutral location and they said, hey, you know, we'll hook up here. Like if you've ever sold something and you, you had to meet someone and you were going to, you were going to deliver the thing that you sold them online or whatever it is. You met someone. They said, Hey, when I pull up, I will be driving this type of car. It'll be this color. When I get out, this is the color clothes that I'm wearing. They give you a description so that when they show up, you know that you're talking to the right person. In the old Testament, the prophets would prophesy about how we would know who the Messiah is. This is how you'll know him when he comes. And not only when he comes, this is what he will be like, but these are the functions that he will carry out. These are the things that he will do. This is how he will experience life. This is how you will know him. Now, I want to look at one of the descriptions that Isaiah is going to give of the Messiah when he shows up, one that the disciples would have been familiar with. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 5, surely he has borne, meaning the Messiah, he has borne our grief. So again, this is prophecy about who the Messiah will be. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we, were, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So Isaiah is saying when he shows up, Life is going to be difficult. He is going to suffer and he is going to die. He is going to be beaten and he is going to be brutalized. He is going to be crucified. He's going to be put on a cross. So Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up that when he comes, this is what life is going to be like for him. So let's go back to Peter's answer. When Peter, when, when Jesus asked the disciples, okay, disciples, now, you've given me popular opinion. You've given me what the people on the street are saying. I want to know who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now, when he says that, when he asked him, my argument 
And this whole thing has been that when Peter answers the question, he got the right answer to the wrong question. And here's, what I'm, here's, what I'm, here's how I arrived at this conclusion. Look in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So right after he gets the answer right, Jesus knew that Peter had the right terminology, but he had the wrong understanding of what he's saying. See, what he had was not the right, proper understanding according to what God's word has taught, but what he had was the, he had a word that had been used on the street and what the word that was used on the street, he had the description in mind when he used that word, the description that was used in the street. Here's what he says. And Jesus begins to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That is an accurate description according to prophecy of what is going to happen to the Messiah. So when Peter says, hey, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Jesus understanding that, like Peter, you just gave me the same answer. You gave me, you gave me, the, the, you gave me the right answer to the wrong question. You gave me the answer to who do people say that I am? Because when Jesus walked in on Palm Sunday, the whole place in Jerusalem was a buzz saying, Hosanna in the highest. There is our king. By Friday, crucify him. Why? Because their understanding of who Jesus was supposed to be was a conquering king. He will be a conquering king when he comes a second time. But the first time he came, he came as a suffering servant. And so Jesus begins to teach them. And watch what Peter does. In verse 32, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Clearly, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. Yet the popular opinion, again, was that Jesus, when the Messiah shows up, he would be a conquering king. And according to Mark 8, 31 and 32, Peter had the right answer to the wrong question. Now, let me tell you what my greatest concern is for the church today. And I don't mean just Osceola Baptist Church. I mean Big C Church. I mean, for all of us who call on the name of Jesus, who claim to be Christians, who say that, you know what, I'm giving my life to serve him. My greatest concern for the church today is that, that we have gotten the right answer to the wrong questions. And more on that just in, a, in just a bit. Look at Luke 10, verse 29. But he, Jesus, or uh, the lawyer, but he desiring to justify himself. Hang on to that word, right? Try, uh, and, and desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor, right? Like, all right, um, let, me, let, me, let me ask this question. So desiring to what? Oh, my goodness. Wake up, church. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Desiring to what? Justify. justify. Have you ever tried to justify yourself? We all do it, don't we? Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You've done it before. You've seen somebody broke down on the side of the road in the pouring down rain, and you drove by and said, somebody ought to help that person. And then the Holy Spirit said, that should have been you. You're like, yeah, but I'm busy. I got an appointment in five minutes. I don't want, I don't want to be late. I mean, we've all done it. We've all seen people in need. And maybe it wasn't even as big a need as you thought it was, but, but in, there, there have been moments in your life that the Holy Spirit kind of pricked your heart and you went, ooh, I, I should do something about that. I, somebody will get to it. Somebody else will do it. Somebody will take care of it. They're probably okay. 
I mean, we have justified ourselves more time than we care to know. Desiring to justify himself. What was he trying to justify himself in? I mean, what did Jesus say that prompted this response? What was he trying to do? Do what? This. Jesus said, do this and you'll live. So he's trying to justify himself in the doing this part. And, and what is the, the to do what? To love your neighbor as yourself. So now, like, okay, do this and you'll live. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you'll live. Okay, well, let me see if I can figure out how to get my way out of this. Let me see if I can figure out how to justify myself. The lawyer's issue, by the way, when he begins to justify himself, when he, he begins to try and do this, notice, notice that he doesn't try to justify himself in the issue of loving God. Oh, we all love God. I mean, come on. Like, how could we not love God? I mean, he went to a cross. He died for our sins. I mean, how in the world could we? None of us have a loving God issue. He didn't go, well, let me see if I can figure out how to justify myself and my love for God. No, because that's a private matter. No one can really see inside of our heart to go, well, let me see if they really love God. Well, the only way we can know that you love God is when you say, you know what? I love God. Now, I mean, we, there's probably other arguments we could make. But no one can really see inside of your heart to go, well, do you, do you love God? Well, of course I love God. Okay, well, I believe you. So he doesn't try to justify himself in his belief of God, but look at where he tries to justify himself. He says, he doesn't say, who is my God? He says, who is my neighbor? It's a minimalist, it's a minimalist mindset because essentially what he wants to know is what is the least I have to do in order to love my neighbor. You know what we're really good at? And we're all, <laughs> I'm guilty of this. I'm not going to put you in that boat with me, but I'm just going to say I'm guilty of this. You know, what we, you know what we're really good at? Oh man, I'll pray for you. You ever, you ever told someone that you were going to pray for them and then you didn't pray for them? And then they come back and thank you for praying for them and you're like, oof. They're like, man, I saw a miracle happen. And you're like, man, I missed out on being a part of a miracle because I didn't pray for them. And, and so we think that loving our neighbor, what is loving our neighbor? How do we love our neighbor? See, this is, the, the, the lawyer has a minimalist, minimalist mindset because again, he essentially wants to know, what is the least I have to do in order to love my neighbor? Do I have to love people that don't look like me? I mean, God, are you asking me to honestly love people who don't look like me? Are you asking me to love people who don't think like me? Are you asking me to love people who don't vote like me? Are you asking me to love people who don't talk like me, agree with me? Or do I have to, are you, are you telling me like I have to love people who don't like me? Who is my neighbor? Seeking to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? So instead of asking Jesus, now, you know what the better question would have been? Questions are great. Jesus was a great question ask her. You know what would have been a great question in that moment? Okay, what does the law say? Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Good answer. Man, that is spot on. Do this, and you'll live. You know what would have been a great question? Instead of going, well, who is my neighbor? You know what he probably should have asked? Jesus, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> 
can you help me? Can you help me learn how to, because I mean, like that is not easy. I mean, every, listen, every one of you in here, when, you, when, when I read that to you and I talked about what is the least I have to do and do I have to love people, like there were probably faces and names that popped into your head that you went, do I have to love them? And instead going, Jesus, you're going to have to help me love them. It's beyond me. I, I, there, listen, we've all heard stories, read stories that have come across the news about people. People who lost loved ones because of the mistakes of others. People who lost a loved one because of a drunk driver. People who have lost out on things because of Again, the insincerity or the indiscretion or the sins of others at times. We, we know people like this. And, and it, it blows my mind when I think about how someone who lost a wife and a child could step into the space and the place where the person who did it and look at them and say, God loves you and I love you and I forgive you. Man, that's, that's tough. That's tough. And, and we have a hard time we have a hard time loving people appropriately. We, we approach it. I'm afraid that we would probably all approach this thing like Jesus did instead of asking Jesus, will you help me to know how to love my neighbor, especially those who may not be like me, talk like me, vote like me, agree with me, like me? If, if we stepped into the space where we said, Jesus, I don't know how to do that. Can you help me? That would have been a better question for him to ask. So instead of asking Jesus to help him understand how to do this, he asked, who is this? So instead of asking Jesus, how do I do this? He says, well, who is it that I have to love? Who is this neighbor that you, that I, I gave the answer to, but who is my neighbor? Maybe, maybe that's our problem too. Maybe we try to justify ourselves by saying things like, you know what? I'm just too busy. I got, listen, there are other people who have been assigned to do this. There are other people who have that task. That's not my job. That's not my role. That's not my part. They're not my people. Or we, maybe we've thought before we try to justify ourselves by saying, well, you know, somebody else will do that. Like I've served my time in that area. I did 10 years in there. That's somebody else's business. Or maybe that's not my responsibility. Perhaps what we need to do is ask Jesus how instead of who. Maybe we should just ask Jesus, Jesus, like, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Let me just pull back and go, okay, Jesus, I understand that command. I'm, you want me to love my neighbor? So instead of asking who, maybe we should ask how. Jesus, you know how difficult this is for me. Jesus, you know how hard. Listen, if you've ever had to stand up in front of people and teach, then you understand the difficulty behind that and how difficult that is. Some of you may have felt in the past a desire to stand, maybe not up here, but maybe in a classroom and teach something. I, I can say this, Bern Toro right now is killing it on Wednesday nights teaching a, a finance class. And it wasn't like Bern was like, man, I just cannot wait to stand up in front of people. But he came and he said, listen, God has asked, I think God's asking me to do this. I want to step out and it's super uncomfortable, but God's telling me to do it, so I got to do it. 
Maybe, maybe for you, it's like God is asking you to grab a microphone and stand up here and sing because in the shower, man, you're killing it. And then while you're in the shower killing it, God says, hey, you know what? You should do that in church. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not getting up on that stage. Not with, no, 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 God, that, that you, no. Mm -mm. Maybe, maybe God has kind of whispered to your heart and said, you know what? There are a bunch of kids in a kids ministry that could use more people to go over there and fill in and love them and encourage them. And you don't have to be the greatest speaker. You don't, you don't even have to speak. You might just have to be a person who sits over there on a the floor with them and should show them some love. And you're like, no, 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 I, I can't do that. I've, I've done my time. I've served in the children's ministry before. Those aren't my kids. They're not even my grandkids. Somebody else can do it. Somebody else can step in. And we try to justify ourselves. Listen to what? In order to answer the question as to who our neighbor is, Jesus is going to teach through a parable. So let's get to the parable. We're going to read uh, straight through. Okay? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, I've heard some things on this. I've heard some read some commentaries. It's possible, one commentary I read said it's possible that the priest was heading to do his priestly duty and had already ceremonially cleansed himself. And there is a part in the law that says if you get within six feet of anyone who's dead, that you are ceremonially unclean, he would have then had to hike all the way back, go ceremonially cleanse himself before he went back to do his priestly duty. And so it was like, okay, maybe he walks by on the other side of the road to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean. Maybe that was the reason. But either way, it says that uh, the, the priest, he walks by on the other side. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite. Now, a priest from the tribe of Aaron. They were the only ones that could hold the position of priest, high priest. Levites were Going back to the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi were people who would serve in the temple. These were people who would help the priest carry out the, 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 the religious duties and the responsibilities within the temple. So here's a Levite, a temple worker. And when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Possible, same scenario. Don't want to get too close, might become unclean. And to become unclean, meaning I have to go back and cleanse myself again. Maybe I don't have time to do that. You know, I got, I got things to do in the temple. And if I, if I have to go all the way back and cleanse, then I'm going to be late and I'm not going to be able to perform my duties. I'm not going to be able to perform my responsibilities. I'm not going to be able to get to the things that I need to do. But, verse 33, a Samaritan. Now, if you don't, know anything about Samaritans. Samaritan today is proverbial for a good doer, a person who does good things. But in Jesus' day, that was not the case. The Samaritans were the bad guys in, in, the, in the eyes of the Jewish people. The Samaritans, um, from years back, if you go back into the Old Testament, uh, the, some Jews were moved to a particular area and they intermarried with people who weren't Jewish and they married people who didn't, have the, who didn't believe in God and they had these other false gods. And, and when they did, their offspring were what they called half-breeds and they were considered like the scum of the earth to the Jewish people. 
so Jesus is very intentional when he uses this person. He says, he says but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, meaning the, the, the victim. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took him to Denary and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So a priest, a temple worker, passed by on the other side, don't do anything about the concern. The Samaritan, the bad guy in the story and the, uh, in the mind of the Jewish people, the, the, bad guy, the, the bad guy is the Samaritan. He's the one who takes care of him and not just takes care of him in that moment, but says, hey, look, I don't want to just take care of you now. I want to take care of you until you're well. Then Jesus follows up with this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go, here it is again, and do likewise. Notice what Jesus does here. Jesus is going to give the right answer to the right question. Jesus is going to give the right answer to the right question. Jesus answers the lawyer's who question, who is my neighbor, with a how answer. Let me tell you how you do this. I'm not going to tell you who. I just want to tell you how. Being a neighbor means more than simply seeing the need. It also means meeting the need. You, you see it and you meet it. You see a need and you do it. You see a need, you take care of it. You see someone who needs help and you step in. That's what Jesus is going to say being a neighbor is. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is the focal point of the parable? It is not, like, I think for most of my life, I read this parable, and the focal point of the parable was the man who fell among robbers. But it is not the parable of the good, or the, 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 the poor victim. It is the parable of the what? So, Jesus, notice Jesus' question at the end. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? He said, who is my neighbor? The, the lawyer says, okay, Jesus, all right, who, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a story and he says, who proved to be a neighbor? Being a neighbor is as much about the how as it is the who. How are we doing? How, by the way, how are we doing? How are you doing being a neighbor? You see, the who will never feel valued if there's never any how moving in his or her direction. Let me say that again. The who will never feel valued as long as there's never any how flowing in his or her direction. Let me ask another question. Notice Jesus' question again at the end, which of these proved to be a neighbor? If again, being a neighbor is much about the how as it is the who, you see the who, again, will never feel valued until... The how, the, the neighbor, the who will never feel valued until the how is moving in his or her direction. See, there's no affection without action. You can't tell somebody you love them and then not show them that you love them. You can't be compassionate if you're not showing compassion. And there's no such thing as a servant that doesn't serve. There's no such thing as a servant that doesn't serve. Jesus 
king of the universe, creator of all things, savior of the world, steps down into the earth and he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my ransom, give my life as a ransom for many. No such thing as a servant that doesn't serve. I want to show you another account real quick in Matthew chapter 25. Um, Jesus, Jesus is going to talk about people who are being served. And there's going to be this disconnect like, well, and he's going to say it was him who was being served. And I want you to watch this. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you uh, a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So what Jesus is, the point Jesus is making is when you serve others, you are serving Jesus. When you are serving others, you're serving Jesus. That, that's how this thing works. Who is my neighbor? It's not so much about who is my neighbor, is are you willing to be a neighbor? I want to ask one more question before we close, and, and I ask this question from a place of love. <clears throat> if being a neighbor is as much about how than who, let me ask you a how question, okay? How are you currently serving? How are you currently serving other people? How are you currently serving Jesus by meeting the needs, the spiritual and physical and emotional needs of other people. Now, before you push back, let me remind you of what the lawyer attempted to do when he was asked the question, um, or when he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Remember, the, neighbor, the, the lawyer had a pushback against that, or he had a way that he tried to, desire, uh, to justify himself. He said, um, he said, who is my neighbor? Now, there, there are 10 reasons, top 10 reasons. This is off the internet. I, I researched it. Top 10 reasons people don't serve in churches. Okay, let me give them to you. Number one, I'm too busy with, I'm too busy with work. Number two, I'm too busy with family commitments. We have kids. Uh, three, I'm too busy with family problems. Number four, I'm too busy with other things like, you know, we've got family stuff going on and family things to attend to, not, not necessarily related to kids, but just outside things. Uh, number five, my husband uh, or my wife and I don't get to spend much time together during the week, so weekends are precious to us. Um, number six, I don't know what opportunities are available. Number seven, I don't have enough information about the available opportunities. Uh, number eight, I don't, want to, uh, I don't know what gifts God has given to me. Number nine, I don't have the skills required to serve in the available areas. And then number 10, no one asked me. Okay, so let me, let me solve a few of these for you real quick. Number one, I'm asking you, okay? Number two, and probably more important than number one, Jesus is calling you to serve. It's why he saved you. Jesus did not save us to sit. He saved us to serve. He's not, he's not, he's not as concerned about our attendance, and yes, he is. I mean, I get that part. It's important that we show up and worship together, but he's not as concerned about our attendance as much as we are attending to the needs of other people. He saved us. 
He indwells us with his spirit. And you say, well, I don't know if I have the abilities. Okay, well, that's part of that. The, the Holy Spirit indwells you, gives you a spiritual gift for the purpose of serving in the body. That's in the Bible, okay? He saved you to give you a spiritual gift, to give you his presence, not just so that this would be your eternal waiting room until you get to heaven, but so that you would do something with this while you were here in order to make much of Jesus and to help people, not just, not just make sure that they're not going to die, as we saw in the parable of the Good Samaritan, but I want to make sure that you not only, that you don't die, but that you get well. And that's discipleship. Discipleship doesn't happen without people serving and getting involved. So how, how are you serving? How's that going? Now, again, the pushback right now is going to be, well, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm too busy. I'm too this, I'm too... You know what that is? That's exactly what the lawyer did, justifying myself, justifying myself. Jesus didn't make that an option. It was kind of a, like the Holy Spirit's in you. There should be a desire to carry these things out. There should be a desire to serve people. There should be a desire to make Jesus known. There should be a desire to see people grow in their faith. So I don't know what opportunities are available. Great news. I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad that that was kind of your, your concern. If you'll get the app, and you don't have to get it, you can email me. I'll be glad to send you a list. But if you get in the app and you go right here, right at the very top, there's this thing called Next Steps. If you click that, it'll say Fill Out Form. And you click that. And then if you'll scroll down, right there is a very long list of places that you can serve in the church. There they are, okay? So now that's one of the things that we checked off of here. Um, I don't have enough information about the available opportunities. You fill that out, check one of those that you're interested in or all of them if you're interested. And then I'll get with you and I'll go, hey, here's, the, here's, here's what's required in that. Here's what this means. Here's what this looks like. I don't have the skills. We'll put you underneath someone that you can train with so that you can learn. We're not going to throw you out there and go, hey, hey, hey we got it. Listen, we got a new, I, Kristen would love this. Um, I don't think you would, but I could tell Kristen, hey, we got somebody new for children's ministry. She's not going to go, that's so awesome. Tell them they can pick their bag of pop, uh, uh, dum-dums up, their little lollipops, and then we're just going to throw them in there with the kids next week and hope everything works out. That's not how that works. We're going to put you in there with people that you can serve with and under so that you can find out if, like, hey, if this is for me, great. But if you get in there and you serve in an area and you go, I, I don't know, what else you got? That's okay. That's okay. But we want you to serve because God doesn't want anything from you. He wants something for you. And all these other things, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And I get it. Can I just say this? Everybody's busy. Everyone is busy, not just you. But I promise you a couple of things. If you, will, if you will just get somewhere and serve, if you'll just find a place to plug in, I promise you, number one, your joy through the roof. Think about it. Everybody wants, but don't we love the stories where we see someone in the world make a difference in someone else's life? I mean, that's the stuff they put on TV. God has equipped you and me and placed us in a church for the purpose of serving him so that we can make a difference in other people's lives. And then, man, you talk about a feel-good story. Do you know how great it feels to to invest in someone, to see their life be turned around by Jesus because of a small investment that maybe you made through even sitting on the ground in a kid's 
area, talking to kids and making sure that they're paying attention. I mean, those are the, those are the things that are life-altering, and you can't get enough of it. Everyone's busy, not just you. Don't allow the enemy, perhaps, to give you things that you can use to try to justify why you're not going to step into what Jesus has called you to. I want to wrap up with this uh, story, okay? And, and this kind of illustrates all this real quick. There were two professors at, at Princeton Theological Seminary, and they, they conducted an experiment um, with their students to find out why people don't stop to help other people. Okay, so this is an experiment that they're trying to carry out. So they created a situation in which the students at the seminary would encounter a man bent over, coughing and giving the impression that he was in trouble, and then watch to see if the students would actually stop to check on him. Now, they added the variable of telling some of the students to prepare a short talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan and others on a totally different subject. Then they told some they were running late so they should hurry to give their talk, and then others they told that they had plenty of time. So you got two groups. One group is going to come and teach a lesson on the Good Samaritan, other group just on one of the other subjects. Then you had another... You had, so in those groups too, some of the students were told man, you got to hurry, you're running behind. And some of the students were like, you have plenty of time, don't worry about it. Of those that were running late, whether or not they had reread the parable of the Good Samaritan, only 10% stopped to see if they could help the man in trouble. Now, can you imagine, sometimes God does that, doesn't he? We read, uh, we read something and then immediately we get hit with the thing that we read. Only 10% of those stopped who had just read the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's because they felt like they were running behind. Of those who thought they had plenty of time, 63% stopped. Having sufficient time mattered more than preparing for ministry or preparing to talk to others about the Good Samaritan. We're all too busy. We are all too busy. Look at your calendars. Look at your schedules. You're feeling stressed out right now because you're wondering if I'm going to get done in time for you to make it to whatever you got next. Like we're all there. What I'm asking you to do, and not really me as much as maybe God is asking you, how are you serving? And are you willing to go, okay, I'm too busy, but I'm not going to justify myself and my actions or my lack of action in that. Are, are you willing to go, okay, I am going to sit down and I'm going to schedule my priorities and I'm going to make this one of my priorities to serve somewhere. Might not be in an area where I have to serve every week for an hour a week, but it might be where I serve an hour a week once a month or once every two months. It, but start somewhere in serving. If you're not serving, find somewhere just small that you can begin to serve so that you can see what serving is all about so your life can make a difference. And so schedule your priorities. And then after you schedule your priorities, then prioritize your schedule. Like I'm going to stick to this. I'm not going to let things come because I'm telling you, you, you know, like I do, I remember when I graduated seminary and I finished with college and I was like, whoo, baby, what am I going to do with all my free time? Man, your free time will get filled up in a hurry. Okay. Prioritize, schedule your priorities and then prioritize your schedules. Get involved somewhere. Three reasons to serve. Number one, you were saved to serve, not sit. So serve 
people. Save people, serve people is what we say around here. Number two, God doesn't want anything from you. He wants something for you. And number three, joy in your life will increase in the proportion that you are willing to give it away. Joy in your life will increase to the proportion in which you give it away. Joy in your life will increase in the proportion that you are willing to give it away. Don't think about it. Do it.